This is Jamie Dyer welcoming you to another edition of The Quocast. And I'm joined once again by musician Greg Harper, who's written a new book about the Quo called Decades, Status Quo in the 1980s. It's available now on Sonic Bond Publishing. Um, Thanks for joining us, Greg. Please tell us, um, why Status Quo in the 1980s? Oh, thanks for having me uh, on again, Jamie. It's a pleasure as always. The thing about the Status Quo in the 1980s is that it's probably the most uh, unfairly criticised period in the band's history. Um, And it's also the most sort of underrepresented in the band's history as far as writing goes, as far as um, any sort of historical documents go. Um, And really, it was uh, an attempt to um, put that right, I suppose. Yeah, I I can see that because you cover um, all areas, including um, sort of from the early period of the 80s where John Coughlin's still in the band to when he leaves, right up until the late 80s recording in Tropical Paradise with Perfect Remedy. Um, You did interviews with members of the band. I mean, obviously you had a publisher behind you, how did they go? Um, how long were they and how much did you actually use in the book? Oh, wow. I mean, the first person I got on board was Rhino. You know, he was, um, I, I sent letters out. Um, being a musician, you know, you have access to some people in some regards. Um, and I wrote every member of the band a letter. Uh, did it old school because I know Andrew is into letters and stuff rather than emails and and uh, I posted them off sort of apropos enough and just see if I could get any kind of interest. And the worst that happened is they all said no. And I just had to do it, you know, just through research. And the next day, my phone rang and it was Rhino saying, yep, yeah, I'd love to do it. Let's put a date in the diary. And uh, he spoke to me for about two hours while he was walking his dog, which was a bit surreal. And um I couldn't get him off the phone, frankly. That man has so many stories and <laughs> thoughts and, and and just one of the nicest blokes, you know. He's um and and Francis was the same. I mean I was I was terrified talking to Francis, you know. And again, I must have been on the phone with him for about two and a half hours. He was in the process of digitizing some of the, the old heavy traffic demos for the upcoming release. Well, it's it's released now. Uh the deluxe heavy traffic and um he was just sat in an armchair by the phone and he spoke to me at, at length. He just kept going and going and going. And again, a lovely, lovely bloke. You know, I, we put them on pedestals, but they are just normal geezers that have lived a very unordinary life. Um, and it was an absolute pleasure. Well, they do give a lot of, of details in the book. Um, one thing I happen to note uh Francis' kind of observation about the In Your Eyes solo, where he says it's like a ship going down, um, that made me chuckle somewhat. I thought that, <laughs> that's a very Francis thing to say. And it's also, um, it's also very true. Went and listened back to it. And I think that's what you get with this book, because alongside all the research and the interviews, you also give kind of a musician's point of view of literally every track including B-sides. I mean, how do you approach that? What is your process for analysing um, music like that? 
that's that's an interesting question. I suppose I I lived and breathed those records as a kid, as a teenager, you know, and um, and being a, a musician, you, you do pick up on little bits and pieces. And I, when I revisited them, listened to them with a musician's ear, uh, with sort of experienced musicianship comes a, a kind of quick... Uh, you develop, you hone your skills when it comes to sort of musical analysis. So you can hear chord sequences and harmonies and rhythms and things without needing a guitar in your hands. Even you just kind of know um, organically. And uh, so the process was pretty quick. Um, some of the things I use some software to decode uh, some backing vocals that I couldn't hear. That's particularly some of Bernie Frost's harmonies are mixed quite low, and certainly Rick's are mixed quite low. Certainly on um the early 80s albums i don't know if you know about phase but if you um put the left and right speakers out of phase it takes anything panned down the middle out of the mix so you can kind of hear a lot of what's going on panned left and right which is normally things like backing vocals and synths and and the two guitars as well so uh just little tricks like that really and there's a lot to detect in there, as you say. And that's one thing I think it made me appreciate when I read the early part of the book is just how much Bernie Frost is integral to that kind of sound between, say, 1980 and, and 82, all those backing vocals. And you realize that that second vocal in there um, is not Rick Parfit, as people may think. It's Bernie Frost. Yeah. Um, I could imagine it probably upset a few people at the time and i know some of the fans weren't very keen to hear it but you can't deny there's a lovely blend between uh francis and bernie's voices um they just blend great it, i don't know whether it's just because they both kind of sing with that kind of back of the throat style uh head voice that they both have but um but bernie's a fantastic vocalist and uh i know francis said that the big the main reason he thinks they never really had a, a big hit record as a duo was because people kind of associated Francis with Rick and seeing Rick not there kind of put people off almost, which I can kind of understand. Um, but Francis only said nice things about working with Rick um, when I was talking to him. You know, I know recently he's come under a lot of fire for stuff and, you know, I, I wouldn't like to comment on, on that kind of thing but i can only speak as i find and he only said lovely things about his old friend you know and um that was kind of nice to hear as well quite reassuring definitely and obviously you've you've written this after the passing of uh rick and, and alan do you think their perspective would have changed the narrative a bit or perhaps um, I noticed a few comments of people saying, oh, there's still some things that are unexplained. Do you think they would have uh, provided extra context? I definitely think. Well, I like to think so. I I reached out to Alan because um, obviously um, Rick went uh, a number of years ago, no, 20, Christmas 2016, wasn't it? Rick? Yeah. Um, but I did reach out to Alan, uh, but it was in the weeks before he passed. And... Um, I just assumed he, he wasn't interested in doing it, frankly. And that, and I'd kind of accepted that that was a, a very likely scenario um, from, from any of the guys that I asked. And then, obviously, we got the news, and um, I was gutted, as I'm sure, you know, all, all the fan base were. Um, because 
he loved making records as much as Francis did, in a different way, of course. But he still had that kind of passionate record-making thing as well. And um, I'd have been interested to see the kind of two different approaches to the the production style of things, because they both produced great records. Um, and uh, yeah, I was gutted that we that we couldn't get Alan involved. Um, God bless him. But I think uh, he would have provided some some hefty insight. Certainly, I I remember saying in the in the letter to the guys though that I wasn't a journo. You know, uh, I wasn't after a scoop. I, the band politics really wasn't the. It, obviously, it had to be mentioned for the for the narrative of the story to make sense. But that wasn't really what I was interested in documenting. What I was really interested in documenting was the creative process and uh, the, the songs themselves, the, the recordings themselves. And um, I think that's what got Francis on board, actually, because I think he knew that it would be an opportunity to talk about the records rather than, you know, why did you fall out with Alan and were things great with Rick, etc. Um, and I think that kind of put them all at ease, knowing that I wasn't after a, a scoop like that, you know. No, and I think that does come across that it it is about the music because, like you say, uh, it's an era that doesn't really get a lot of attention. Uh, certainly, that mid to late eighties era, um, with the book being around one hundred and twenty plus pages, do you feel like you could have gone on? Like there was more things you could have expanded on? <laughs> uh, yeah. I'd- I remember my publisher saying, you know, it's a bit music theory heavy, you know, maybe back off on the music theory a bit, which I did. Um, And obviously in the edit process, things get lost. And, you know, do we need to say this? And a a lot of things were said uh, kind of off the record, if you like, talking to some of the guys in the band and, uh, you know, stuff that they said and then went, oh, actually, don't put that in, you know, (laughs) Um, which I respected and, and didn't. Um, nothing terrible, I might add, but, you know, just stuff they, to keep the kind of, I don't know, the, the mystery alive, you know, keep the magic alive for the fans. And, um, yeah, some things were omitted, but the thing is, you, I think the publisher's trying to not just market the book towards fans, but also casual listeners as well. Um which you know, I'm not convinced I did particularly well, actually. It's quite nerdy. It's a very geeky book. Um, but to be honest, I'm, I'm kind of pleased with it. You know, I'd, I think if I'd had the opportunity again, I'd be more involved in the, in the sort of picture selection and stuff. The publisher did all that. Um, but yeah, I, I, it was a really enjoyable process. And um, I, I got as much in as I, as I felt your average Quo fan could take. <laughs> and that's where the next question comes in um somebody on the facebook page wanted to know will there be um a follow-up either status quo in the 60s 90s because someone said what about the 70s and it's like but the 70s has been covered in dozens of books there are several books frantic four uh 70s innovator rock you know all that stuff um yeah. is there a sequel to this i'd love to do one um because there was a couple of of Francis Blessing doesn't quite remember what happened when he remembers stuff happening, but he was telling me stories about rock till you drop and um, and thirsty work even and getting you know when we were talking about the eighties. So there's definitely a 
a plethora of information there to to mine. Um, but I don't know. I, I, it's not so much about the sales of this one. I think it's more just about the reception. If the reception's good, um, then it's definitely something we'll think about. I've been asked that question a couple of times. I think if we were to do it, we'd look at a, a 90s one, probably. Um, just because uh, we've got more people to, to ask that are around these days. Um, you know, what with losing Rick and Allen, um, you know, the the 60s would be great. I'd love to learn about their sort of live touring schedules in the 60s, but with only two albums to discuss and a, a handful of singles before they became the status quo. Um, I just don't know if we could get a full book out of it. I think that would be something that the band would have to do themselves. I just don't think there's enough source information to, to do it, but I may be wrong. Well, in this book, um, as you say, there's a lot of testimony from Rhino, but also Jeff Rich, who hasn't really done a lot of interviews in regards to his work in status quo. Drumming, yes, but um, there are a few things that Jeff said in there that you've put in there as quotes that I wasn't aware of. Like, I had no idea that, um, obviously, I knew that he had played with Jackie Linton, but I didn't realize that when Jackie supported Quo, that he was in that. I mean, were you surprised by any of these revelations? Yeah, that was, I mean, again, I knew he played with Jackie Linton. Um, but it, just that they supported Quo and that, you know, he was nearly poached at the time um, <laughs> was, you know, a, like a bit of a shock, I suppose. Um, and it just goes to show how that industry works. Um, you know, it's quite cutthroat, I suppose. And, it's all about who you know and where you are, being in the right place at the right time. And um, and then he got the opportunity again through a completely different channel, um, through Pip Williams and, and Rick. So it was a, yeah, massive shock. And he, what a lovely guy he is. He can, he, he very forthcoming with information and very, um, they were all very generous with their time, to be honest. But Jeff, it was lovely talking to him because I've just never had that opportunity to to hear from, you know, the the drummer's point of view. It's quite rare. And um, and John Coughlin was the same, to be honest. A lovely bloke. Um, it was blazing sunshine, I remember, in England at the time. We had all that lovely weather last year. And um, he, uh, he sat indoors to talk to me for an hour. And... Uh, what he he doesn't say a lot, but what he does say is gold, you know. Um, and Gilly was great as well, um, sorting everything out. And it was honestly, Jamie, I, I can't tell you how heartwarming it was to be um, talking to these people and having your kind of uh, what's the word? Your expectations met. You know, they were everything I wanted them to be, um, and it was great. Really lovely. I'm glad you had that experience. I, I've interviewed a couple of them. I've interviewed John and, and Rhino. And um, 10 years ago, I interviewed Alan as well. Um, oh, why? Yeah, it, it was a long, long time ago. And I was very nervous about it because it, um, I had always done interviews in the studio and because um, I, I worked for a radio station at the time. And then a year later, I started doing stuff from home. And he was the first person I spoke to. And I can tell you, one of your heroes is not 
<laughs> the ideal first interview because you're nervous oh, about other I things. Don't. You're nervous about tech going down because you're in charge of everything. Um, but when it comes to writing it down, I mean, that must be uh, that must be quite difficult because sometimes when people say things, you know, they mean it in a way that doesn't always translate to to paper. Did you have anything like that? Yeah, you know, there was a couple of things that when I wrote them down, I thought, oh, that doesn't come across the way they said it. Um, with the, the inflection they said it with, you know, particularly funny stories and things. Uh, so if in doubt, I, I kept it out. Um, just because I I was trusted with that information they gave me and I had to respect it as much as possible. And, um, and yeah, so like I say, some things were left out if they didn't come across very well in, in written text. Um, but not a lot. You know, most of what they said found its way in. Um, I know when I, I I rang Francis and he picked the phone up and I asked how he was. And he said he was not that good because he was worrying about Spotify, you know, straight away, straight in <laughs> at the jugular. Um, and I mean, I, I don't know if you if you know much about this, but Spotify is uh, not great really for for musicians and independent artists and things um and it, it's really bothering him and we had a you know at least a, a 15 minute conversation about that um obviously that, it didn't really make its way into the book because it wasn't relevant but it was just so lovely to have that conversation and that um that lovely interaction with i you know i don't like to use the, the term my heroes but they are my heroes you know mm -hmm. um so important to me and uh, like i say they were everything i i wanted them to be so yeah a pleasure and you you touched upon there uh the idea of something being relevant you don't just stay in the 1980s for some of these things occasionally when you cover a track or or an album you say oh well this was later done for this or this has relevance in the previous decade because of this like you you do reference from it quite a lot don't you yeah, I think so. I think just to provide as much context as possible. I think one of the, the key interviewees I would have loved to, to talk to would have been Pip Williams, who um, has since received a copy of the book and he's pretty knocked out with it, I believe. Um, but he was quite poorly at the time. Thankfully, temporarily. Um, I don't believe it's anything life-threatening, but uh, he just wasn't well enough to give a, an interview at the time. Um, but man... I'd love to talk to him. I'd love to talk to Pip Williams because, you know, I know it, it kind of divides fans, the Pip Williams slick production. Uh, but I think me and you have discussed this before. I love it. I love that slick production style. Uh, and I know Francis does as well. Um, so I would have loved to have spoken to him and got a little more insight into the recording process and, uh, and the creative process. Well, it sounds like he had quite a lot of um say over the stuff in and certainly ain't complaining and perfect remedy because he has songs on those albums um one one particular thing that stuck out to me you've you've got a, a section with andy bowen uh talking about heart on hold which mm. is a track from the perfect remedy album which he wrote with a, a co-writer and i love his explanation of they just like 
went and had a drink and then sat down and wrote this song and then couldn't sell it to anybody. So I thought, ah, Quo can do it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, it's weird. I didn't make the connection with Phil Palmer. Uh, I'm a big Dire Straits fan as well. And Phil Palmer worked loads with Dire Straits in the late 80s, early 90s as kind of an auxiliary guitar player uh, on, on live shows. And uh, that kind of passed me by. I just never made the connection that it was the same guy, you know. Um, that tr- I, There's something about that track. It's kind of quirky. It's very Andy-ish. Um, but it's it's got a real charm to it, I think, that heart on hold. Um, I know some of the, the production choices didn't age as well as they would have hoped, but um, as a composition uh i like it it's it's straightforward it's quirky and um and like i say it's got a charm to it i think um but i bet we're in a minority there jamie i think so yeah there there are a few questionable um as you say production choices one two three four it's like okay what's what's this weird robotic thing i'd love to know who that is um just being put through some kind of processor um, and that, that's the thing. I mean, you, you really give the impression that in the early 80s, they're just kind of continuing as they had done before while trying to reinvent in some ways. And you cover things like uh, the um, NEC gig of, of 1982, that you know those sets of gigs for uh, the Prince's Trust. You cover Live Aid and things like that. And then after that, it sort of goes into, it's this almost new band trying to adapt to the 1980s and um again with the perfect remedy thing you really gave the impression that they went away on on this island to do some stuff and they didn't really achieve a lot and that seemed to me to to be uh what it was like in that particular period where they'd go and do this stuff and it it just didn't always gel together no, and I'm not even convinced that it wasn't because the creative juices weren't flowing or that as a band it wasn't working. I think there were so many distractions. Um, you know, they. I know there was some financial trouble with a couple of the guys in the band at the time, but they were still big stars um, and still living lives of excess. And I think uh, that was the real problem, certainly where Perfect Remedy is concerned. Um because there's some good tracks on there um and the production if you take the name states quo away from it um and just market it as a a light pop rock record middle of the road rock record the production's ace the production's fine there's nothing wrong with it um it's just it's not what people expect when they hear the name states quo and i think um that's the problem i think they made a rod for their own backs quo with that name you know i think it kind of promised the fans something that they would never get, which is for the band to stay completely still and just keep making on the level over and over and over again. Um, you know, and Francis was showing these country uh, tendencies as early as kind of the spare parts era. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to expect them not to explore those things that they're passionate about, would, well, it's unfair, I suppose, isn't it? It is incredibly unfair. You're you're right because there were a lot of influences in there, and and you mentioned the gaslight se- uh, sessions of 1985, where 
it sounds like what Alan wanted to do was to go to Australia and basically bash out a cheap album um, yeah. for a certain amount of money. And it's almost a certainty, I think, that the tracks that came out of those sessions in mid-85, which you say it's it's common that perhaps Rick isn't playing on it, but I think it's been said before he is. Um, what do you make of those those tracks? Do you think that would have been successful for them. Uh, I'm thinking of things like put your money where your mouth is uh, one of a kind. I think one of a kind could have been a hit record. Um, and I, I think Alan does a great job of the vocal on the demo. I mean, I know that they're, they're kind of considered to be demos, but they're very good studio demos um, and there's great playing on them. And the production's pretty good to consider that they're just a, a studio demo. Um, I think it's the kind of single that Alan could have sung a lead vocal on with quote. Um, but unfortunately it was too little too late. I think at the time, I think the, the creative bond between Francis and Alan was sort of permanently uh, severed by that point, or at least frayed. And um, like I say, if he'd have written that song five years earlier, um, it could have been a hit record for quote, I think. Maybe, um, maybe without the sax. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I like the sax personally. I, I, and again, I know I'm in a minority there, um, but I'm a jazz fan. You know, I like John Coltrane and Ornette Coleman. You know, um, so may, maybe I think they were kind of trying to. Every pop record had a sax solo or a guitar solo on it in the eighties, didn't it? I think maybe they were trying to go for that that kind of Bruce Springsteen vibe. Um, and of course, there's sax on the Wanderer. Um, it's mixed fairly low, but it's nice to have it on there. I think. Apparently, it's a guy called um, Dick Morrissey. Is it Dick Morrissey? Um, that was um, that name came through from uh, from Pip via Rhino. Um, I asked Rhino if he could find out for me, and he did. Bless him. Um, but yeah, I think I think one of a kind definitely could have been a hit record for the band. I think that's that's definitely. I, I remember hearing it a long time ago and thinking uh, that section into the chorus, where you can imagine it's almost old rag bluesy um, yeah. in its style. It's definitely the same writer um, coming up with this stuff. And as you've kind of observed, like that era is kind of a band pulling in different directions and, and trying different things. But um, for those who don't respect this era. A lot of the songs, certainly from In the Army now, actually originate from, you know, sessions from five to ten years previously. Uh, mm. I'm thinking of things like uh, Invitation, for example, yeah. uh, were demoed in like 1978. Uh, some of the tracks that Rick kind of recorded for his solo that ended up as Quo B-sides and stuff, things like Keep Me Guessing, were recorded in demo form years earlier. So do you think in some ways this era gets very unjust in its negativity? Like, Yeah. I mean, it's an easy target, isn't it? You know, the band start, I mean, the band were using th synthesizers in the seventies, um, but now they're being pushed up in the mix a little. Um, and it just, it just makes them an easy target because they're, you know, they're trying to chase a hit record like any successful band are um you know and and i know francis wants to wanted to go for that ultra commercial thing and um and it paid off 
more than once. You know, Margarita Time was a commercial sounding record. Old Rag Blues was a commercial sounding record. Um, I know that was written by Alan, but Francis believed in it as a song. He saw its sort of commercial potential. Um, and so did the record company, apparently. So, you know, they weren't doing anything differently, really. They were just trying to move with the times, and I, it upset some people. Um, but it's it's a real shame that that Francis and Alan kind of went that way. But then you think, I remember thinking to myself, you know, am I still best mates with the people I was friends with when I was 19? Mm-hmm. You know, I, you know, it's, you know, do we still like the same things and want to achieve the same things? And of course you don't, you know, because you grow as people. And um, that's why Francis ended up making country records with, hannah rickard which was great by the way mm. and um and why alan went into you know playing with the party boys and the bombers and stuff you know making you know heavier rock records um they just grew apart i think i think so um when it comes to musicians on albums we've already mentioned that like bernie frost was sort of like this silent but vocal person in the back who contributed things including the falsetto vocals but the one of the things that kind of surprised me was that um during sort of the in the army now ain't complaining era andy bowen is playing keyboards but there was another one who was uncredited wasn't there yeah that's paul wickens wicks wickens um yeah there's a bit of a blurred line there um in truth about who played what in particular um my current understanding of it is that um andy is is on those obviously on those records um but i think wasn't particularly interested in playing the synth parts i think he wanted to be a an organist pianist because that's that's his gig you know that's what he does that's what he's brilliant at um world class at actually um and paul wicks was um uh, a kind of artist that goes around trade shows, you know, demoing gear. And um, uh, he was a friend of Pip's and Francis's, and he was kind of brought in to, you know, play synth parts that sounded like saxophones or <laughs> horn sections or strings or whatever. Um, so he was almost brought in, although he's, you know, a, a keyboardist, really his job was kind of uh, a production one in a way just adding little bits of sweetener to tracks and um yeah i and i think that's you can kind of hear the bits andy played and the bits um paul wicks played um and andy mentioned it in a keyboardist magazine about 10 years later um around the thirsty work era that i found um and he he's the one that kind of in that interview uh, made me aware of the fact that it's actually Paul Wickens playing a lot of the synth parts on on In the Army. Yeah, uh, that that was certainly something I wasn't aware of either. And and that's where you've done your research and you figured this out. And that there are lots of these incidences, like the the well known one that obviously Pip is playing some of the solos instead of Francis. Some of that is because of overlap. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's other instances where. Um, Rick in the book from an old interview that you found 
kind of says that Alan possibly wasn't playing some of the bass parts in the latter part of his Quo career. Yeah, which is, um, you know, uh, upsetting to think, but it happens in in professional record making. And I think, um, you know, there's been times when any band, whether they're pro or not, ends up going, oh, let me just put a quick bit of acoustic guitar on that, or, oh, that bass sounds a bit sloppy. You know, in post-production, when someone's, you know, flown home, oh, let, we need to do that bass part again. It's not in time. It's not in tune or whatever. And you you correct it in, in post, which isn't ideal, but it happens. And I think that's probably what they're referring to there. Um, like I say, I think they want to, as a as a brand and as a uh you know a british institution want to try and keep as much of that magic alive as possible but it's um they're creative people and if if a track's not working uh you find the the offending element and replace it or take it out and um it's highly likely that some of the bass parts have have been re-recorded by rick or francis but then it's also highly likely that alan's played plenty of rhythm guitar on tracks you know like mountain lady and you know it's they'd have probably all done bits and pieces for each other yeah i i think that's that's the way that it, it is in in bands as you say and and music in general and perhaps some don't don't quite realize that that during the record making process it isn't like going to play a live gig um certainly later on where it's a lot more studio heavy um like in the in the army now era where everything is recorded separately and separated and you know there are different mixes around um so this is status quo in the 1980s it's part of the decade series from sonic bond publishing by um greg harper the book and uh, is there anything else that you're working on at the moment anything musically or uh, or book form uh, no, no written stuff at the moment. No books. Um, just going to enjoy Christmas. Then I think we'll in the new year we're going to um, compose some more music. We we do some composing for music libraries and adverts and things. So uh, back to that kind of job, and um, we'll see what the reception's like from uh, from the uh, the first one. And if there's any interest and enough uh, call for it, we might do the uh, the 90s or even the 60s. We'll have a look. We'll see. Well, I look forward to whatever comes next and uh, I'll leave all the details in the description below about how you can purchase the book. And I'll say, Greg, thanks very much for being on the podcast today. A pleasure as usual, Jamie. Thanks, mate. (laughs) 